You're listening to On Israel in Al Monitor. I'm Ben Gaspit from Tel Aviv. Even those of us uh, following the roller coaster of the talks with Iran are having trouble keeping up with the dizzying developments. Once again, none of us have any idea whether world powers will sign a deal with Iran on its nuclear program in the coming days, the coming weeks, the coming months, or never. Meanwhile, in Israel, the negotiations with Iran are fueling the infighting between former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his successors at the helm of government, Prime Minister Yair Lapid, his predecessor Naftali Bennett, and Defense Minister Benny Gantz. The Iranian uh, nuclear threat was one of uh, Netanyahu's most important political growth engines in his 12 consecutive years in power. He boasted of his uh, long-standing struggle against this threat, took credit for the intrusive sanctions imposed on Iran, and boasted of his skill in persuading President Trump to withdraw from the agreement four years ago. In his videos and tweets this past week, Netanyahu accused Gantz and Lapid of falling asleep on their watch, failing to fight against the emerging agreement as he himself did when he was in power, and generally blaming them for Iran's development into a nuclear threshold state. Netanyahu, as usual, shapes reality and sculpts the truth for his own purposes. His claims have little to do with reality. He forgets to mention that despite his own bitter and sometimes uh, underhanded struggle against the agreement and against uh, President Barack Obama personally, it was signed in 2015. Nor does he mention the fact that uh, in retrospect, Trump's withdrawal from the deal has proven to be a strategic disaster. This is what uh, most Israeli security chiefs believe. This is what Netanyahu was warned against in real time by top intelligence officials. But he ignored their warnings and rushed ahead toward an abyss. We'll be talking uh, with today's uh, On Israel guest about this volatile issue and its implications for Israeli politics and policies. Amir Tibon is deputy editor for Haaretz newspaper's English edition and host of the Haaretz weekly podcast. From 2016 to 2020, he was the paper's correspondent in Washington where he covered the Trump administration, Congress, and the U.S. Jewish community. Amir Tibon will be right here with us after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. 
As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Al Monitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. Now I'm happy to uh, congratulate and uh, welcome to this uh, podcast my friend and colleague uh, Amriti Bon. Shalom Amir, how are you doing? And thank you for joining us here in uh, On Israel in Al Monitor. Hi Ben, it's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And we are talking about uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear effort. Uh, it's over 20 years now that... Uh, Israel is fighting this effort and trying to delay, postpone, maybe even uh, eliminate this effort. And I'll ask you first the the big question, uh, the general question, although uh, if uh, the head of the Mossad doesn't know the answer, I doubt you do. But if you had to assess the likelihood of an agreement between world powers and Iran, what would you say? I think there will be an agreement eventually because it's in everyone's interest to sign one. The Iranians need the money relief. The Americans want one less headache on their list of global headaches, which includes larger problems like China and Taiwan, Russia and Ukraine, global warming, uh, global inflation and other troubles. And then, of course, for the Europeans, the Chinese, the Russians, there is a clear economic interest here. So there will eventually be an agreement. But will it be signed in the coming weeks, in the coming months? That no one can tell, not even the head of Mossad. You know, Ben, we here in Israel tend to have a very, um, tend to have a very kind of mythological view of Mossad and its yeah. capabilities. And of course, to listeners abroad, sometimes it's even more glowing. Just the name of Mossad comes with this assumption that these people know everything. But sometimes even the head of Mossad doesn't know what, at the end of the day, is happening inside the mind of the Iranian supreme leader. And without his word, there will not be an agreement anytime soon. I have so I think things... we should all be a little humble. Yes, and I have two things to comment because you remind me a, a feature that I wrote long ago, 25 years ago or more when I was the Marif's New York bureau chief in New York about the mythology of the Mossad that every incident, weird or strange or whatever, all over the world is automatically attributed to the Mossad. The, the course, every uh, conspiracy theory, the Mossad, the, the Mossad is even responsible to the to the the, the bombing the, the the World Trade Center, etc. They control they control the weather, right? They can exactly. make it rain. They can make the sun go up. But and the they, problem then is that sometimes people in Mossad might believe it, and then what <laughs> yes. And the second comment is that you say uh, I I share your opinion. I think there will there will be an agreement, but. When you say it's uh, in everyone's interest, I want to remind you that uh, peace in the Middle East is also in everyone's interest, and uh, we're still waiting. And let's dive to the other, uh, more maybe uh, specified question. Israel is waging a patient and sophisticated war against disagreement. Unlike uh, Netanyahu, who launched a noisy head-on public campaign against the U.S. 
president and his administration and did not give up even after the fact Bennett followed by Lapid and Gantz are much more cautious but no less determined they fought against the in, uh, intention to remove the revolutionary guards from the US terrorist list now they are insisting that uh, even if a deal is signed it cannot include the closure of uh, three IEA investigations into Iran's uranium enrichment their tactic seems to be succeeding, at least for now. Do you think this policy is right? And might, uh, might it lead the sides to a total dead end? I don't think Israel has the power to kill this agreement and stop it from eventually being signed. Because again, as we just discussed, the interests that are involved here of all the relevant countries, and we're talking here about world powers, countries much larger and stronger with Israel, with all due respect to our beloved country. These interests will eventually sway the decision. But it's true that instead of fighting against the very signing of the deal, which is what Netanyahu tried and failed to do in 2015, it seems if you try at the end of the day to look beyond all of the smoke and the great proclamations that Lapid and Bennett and Gantz have adopted a more realistic policy of trying to influence the agreement. It seems that Bennett and Lapid and uh, Gantz have adopted a more realistic policy of trying to influence the agreement, not kill it, but shape it in a way that will be more comfortable to Israel on certain aspects that will take into consideration Israeli core interests. And I think in that regard, Israel could have some influence, but it will not be able to kill the deal. If Lapid, Gantz, Bennett, or the head of Mossad think they can destroy this deal from being you know, signed, I think at some point they will be disappointed. But if they think that they have a chance to influence it, they may be right. Israel's defense establishment is divided on this issue. The head of Mossad, we just mentioned it, insists Israel must do everything possible to prevent strategic disaster, as he called it, uh, in the form of an agreement. IDF, IDF chief of staff Kohavi holds similar views, not exactly. Military intelligence, on the other hand, thinks differently. Defense Minister Gantz is also less adamant. Lapid is somewhere between Gantz and the Mossad, the Americans, after all these, are hearing different voices rather than seeing a unified stand. If Lapid were to ask you, what would you advise him? First of all, I, I hope he doesn't ask me <laughs> because <laughs> I think there are smarter and more knowledgeable people who have worked on this file for many years. And I've written about it uh, mostly from the perspective of the U.S.-Israel relationship. I'm not an expert on Iran and certainly not on nuclear weapons. But in that narrow area where I do consider myself knowledgeable, which is the U.S.-Israel relationship, I would advise him to stay away from the bravado and the combative statements that Netanyahu made at the time and not to turn this into a fight between Israel and the United States. This is, at the end of the day, a rivalry between Israel and Iran, and it's also a global crisis that involves many other countries. And the last thing Israel should do is turn this issue into a confrontation with, with really the one country in the world that gives Israel the most important uh, support and really our only true powerful friend out there in this big, dangerous world. Um, so that's the one piece of advice I would give him. 
And of course, that doesn't mean Israel needs to congratulate the U.S. on the agreement automatically. It doesn't mean that Israel cannot have some objections. It certainly doesn't mean that Israel cannot reserve other options, even after an agreement is signed, at least rhetorically. But it does mean that we need to be calculated and cautious in how we approach this. And the worst thing is to turn it into a political issue here in Israel, because Ben, you probably remember that when Netanyahu went to Congress to give his famous speech against the negotiations that Obama was doing with Iran, it just happened to take place two weeks before an Israeli election. And the speech just happened to be scheduled at 12.30 p.m. in Washington, D.C., which is a time that nobody in America watches television, but happens to be 7.30 p.m. here in Israel, just before the evening news. So don't turn this into a political issue. Don't try to turn this into a campaign issue. Manage it in a responsible way that keeps a, an open dialogue with the Americans. This is the one piece of advice I would give, um, because this is the only thing, again, involving Iran and the negotiations where I feel I have something valuable to say. I think you're totally right. I think this speech in Congress won the election for Netanyahu, at least was a, a, a huge factor in Netanyahu trailing by two or three mandates after Bougie Herzog before and winning the election by six mandates. It was a huge win for Netanyahu and Israelis, every Israeli, even guys like you, like me, or in the left that, that are hearing him in Congress with 7,000 uh, uh, times of uh, standing ovations, Standing ovation after standing ovation. Exactly. Yes. And so he but, won but, the, but, the but, election, but, but lost the, the battle uh, of, of the nuclear Irans. And this is, I, I, this is Netanyahu. Yeah. I wrote at the time that there were two winners from that speech. One was Benjamin Netanyahu, but the other was Barack Obama, because this speech solidified the Democratic Party behind Obama's Iran negotiation. It hurt the efforts that AIPAC and other supporters of Israel were trying to do on Capitol Hill to gather support, um, sorry, to gather uh, opposition uh, to the deal. And basically it became a test of loyalty for Democrats. Do you stand with our president or do you stand with this guy who came to Washington with all the chutzpah in the world to attack the negotiations? So yeah, it helped Netanyahu politically, but maybe it helped Obama even more. Uh, and if we are, go on diving into this, uh, I think it was obvious, you know, uh, people like Chaim Saban from the Democratic side of the political map in the United States tried to check if there is a chance of blocking somehow the, the signing of the agreement through this, uh, this speech. And I think it was Nancy Pelosi that told him, listen, this is a a, a sitting democratic president, you don't have 1% to, to halt it or to stop it or to uh, torpedo it. So it was just politics by Netanyahu, internal politics. And by the way, we are paying for it until now. We could get a lot uh, more aid, the military aid from the United States for 10 years if you were not doing this. But, you know, Bibi is Bibi and, uh, and that's life. Uh, Netanyahu, but we're talking about him, as expected, is attacking his successor's policies. You responded uh, this week, or it was last week, with an article that you headlined, the father of the Iranian nuclear program. You're talking about Bibi. I'd love uh, a detailed explanation of uh, this view. So I, I think I used architect, not a father, but I think basically my argument, in, and I invite the listeners to look for this article in, in haaretz.com, uh, 
um, I wrote that if it had not been for Netanyahu's pressure on former President Trump to withdraw from the previous nuclear deal in 2018, there would be no Iran talks today in Vienna. There would be no need to negotiate a new agreement, an agreement that uh, if it is signed, many experts and uh, the heads of government here in Israel and Netanyahu himself are warning will be worse for Israel than the previous agreement. So think about it for a second then. An agreement was signed in 2015. Netanyahu railed against it. Uh, although there were prominent voices in the Israeli defense establishment and intelligence community who said, we don't like this deal. We would have concocted a different deal, but we can live with it. And it, at the end of the day, pushes Iran further away from a nuclear bomb. Then in 2018, Netanyahu pressures Trump to withdraw from that deal and to leave complete chaos behind with no plan B, with no backup. And at the time, some of the most influential people in Israel, people in the highest ranks of the military and the intelligence community, and also in Washington, the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, were warning against this move. And they said this will create a dangerous situation where there are no limitations on Iran. And Iran responded by enriching more and more uranium. And then there will be a new agreement signed under worse terms than the original one. And here we are, and here we are in 2022. This is what we're seeing in front of our eyes. So that's why I wrote that if an agreement will be signed in Vienna, many people in the international community will look at Benjamin Netanyahu as one of its key architects. Without his pressure on Trump, and it's important to remember, no other key U.S. ally supported that move by Trump. Not Germany, not France, not the U.K., not Japan, not Canada. Uh, even in the Arab world, people were warning him against this. It was Trump and Bibi against the rest of the world. And now we are paying. Now both of them are out of power and we are paying. And by the way, Iran, if we're talking about the uh, uh, uranium enrichment, is already there. Uh, there are weeks from uh, what we call uh, SQ-1, uh, sufficient quantity for one atomic bomb. And uh, this is all because that uh, the, 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 this move by President Trump that left uh, the, the agreement, and then the Iranians were able to start uh, enriching uranium because uh, no one could say anything to them if they don't get the goods. Why should they pay the price? But uh, but I want to I want to make it harder for you because uh, Netanyahu. Let's dwell for a moment on Netanyahu's plan. He was counting on one of three scenarios: either the Iranian regime would collapse under the the maximum pressure. Or it would surrender to, uh, and agree to a better agreement, better and stronger. Or Trump would attack Iran. None of these assessments uh, panned out, but one can't help uh, but admire Netanyahu's skill in convincing Trump, uh, Trump to pull out of the deal and in bringing Iran to the verge of collapse. How do you see all this? Netanyahu is a talented and skilled and smart person, but... Uh then sometimes you can use a great talent in a bad way. Someone can be an amazing driver, but if they use it to go 250 kilometers per hour <laughs> and uh, make an accident, then what is there to admire? And I think in this case, Netanyahu indeed used all of his media and the uh, political uh, reading of uh, the Republican Party and the connections he built over the years in the Republican camp 
to push Trump toward the decision that his own intelligence and military experts warned him was a bad one for Israel. So this is what we're looking at. Someone who indeed has perhaps uh, amazing capabilities, but they are used for a decision that really did not put Israel in a better situation at all. And the reality that you described with Iran being so close to the capability of producing a bump is exactly why you have this split right now within the Israeli leadership that you described earlier in our conversation, where some people, like the head of Mossad, think the emerging agreement is the worst thing in the world, but others, like the head of military intelligence, say actually the worst situation for us it was, is what is happening today. And an agreement for all of its disadvantages is preferable to the reality that Trump and Bibi left behind. But, you know, Ben, one thing that I don't understand is where are the voices of uh, some of the people who were around Netanyahu at the time, uh, including, uh, for example, uh, Gadi Eisenkot, the former chief of staff of the military, who in real time warned that this was a bad decision and he recently joined politics. And ever since he joined politics, we've not heard a word from him. His voice could make a difference on this issue. And um, for some reason, he's not been speaking up yet. First of all, I can answer you. He will speak uh, this Saturday in the whole uh, three or four uh, channels in Israel. Uh, I will be, be, get the, even the possibility to interview him uh, with uh, my colleague Amit Segal. But secondly... He gave me, uh, I think, eight or nine months ago, a, a very, very detailed interview in Mariv, and he said there specifically, it was a huge mistake. Yeah. We he yeah. did not consult. He said about Benjamin Netanyahu, he did not consult us. He asked no one before he went to this uh, move, and when he was warned by us, by the way, by a, a senior uh, officer in uh, military intelligence named Dor Shalom, uh, the head of research of uh, military intelligence, now is uh, in the defense ministry with uh, Gantz, actually was with Gantz in all the talks in Washington uh, last week, and they all told him, listen, Mr. Prime Minister, you don't have a backup uh, uh, plan. You don't have plan B. What will you do if Trump will not be there, if, if nothing happens? And uh, I, I guess, uh, like you just said, that uh, General Eisenhower and many others will open the, their mouth and speak. But let's for a second ignore the, the nuclear, the Iranian nuclear issue and look back at 2015 about the bilateral relationship between Israel and the United States, and you know a lot about it. Do you think that Netanyahu's decision to essentially go behind Obama's back and lobby Congress against the deal damage Israel's relationship with the Democratic Party, the future of the relationship between Israel and the United States, the bipartisanship, etc.? I think it definitely caused damage, but not irreparable damage. And we, I think we already saw uh, during the uh, one year that we had a different government in power here in Israel that uh, some of the damage with the Democrats was uh, beginning to heal. And I think the main damage is to Netanyahu's brand in American politics. If you look today on the Republican side, Netanyahu is admired, although even President Trump, who used to be his close friend, has made some interesting statements about him since leaving office. Uh, we mm -hmm. saw the interview he gave to our colleague Barack Ravid, where he said some uh, words that I will not uh, repeat now, Ben, because, uh, you know, this don't, is a family-friendly <laughs> podcast. Um, 
but uh, we also saw that in Jared Kushner's recent book uh, that uh, Trump was angry at Netanyahu and felt that Netanyahu misled him. And it's an interesting question of, uh, you know, if at some point Republicans will have to choose between Trump and Bibi, who will they go with? Uh, on the Democratic side, the dynamic is more interesting. The older generation of Democratic leaders, Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Biden, these are huge fans of Israel. They are tired of Netanyahu. They've seen enough of him. They don't believe in him anymore. They don't really care what he has to say. And if he will come back to power here in Israel after our upcoming election, they will not treat him as a serious leader, but you know, as someone that they've dealt with in the past and they know that is coming from always a political point of view. With the younger generation of Democrats, the emerging leaders, it's even worse. Because for them, the defining political memory of Netanyahu is that speech in Congress in 2015. And even before that, the claims that he was trying to involve Israel in the 2012 election to defeat Obama and put Mitt Romney in power. Mm -hmm. And so when that's the impression, and remember at the end of the day, one, you know, a democratic uh, member of the House of Representatives or even a senator cannot follow Israeli politics to the degree and the level that we go into right now. They follow other countries as well. America is an empire that has interests all over the world. And there is no second chance to make a first impression. If you're an up-and-coming democratic politician and you've been following the Israeli-U.S. relationship in the last decade, your impression of Netanyahu is pretty much uh, the 2012 election and those claims about interference, the 2015 speech against Obama, and then convincing Trump to uh, get out of the Iran deal, you're not going to like this guy. So that's not going to be a healthy relationship. But it doesn't mean that there is no chance for Israel as a country to build good ties with some of these emerging democratic leaders. Israel still remains a very popular country in the United States. You see it in public opinion polls. Most Americans have a positive view of Israel and have a level of sympathy to Israel, even if they have criticism of some of what we do, and even if there is also growing sympathy toward the Palestinians, it doesn't necessarily mean people don't like Israel. But I think the Netanyahu era, uh, first of all, the big public fight with Obama, and then this bromance with Trump definitely left some damage that still has not been completely repaired. I think you've answered my next question. I'm not sure. I wanted to ask you that uh, you have argued that Netanyahu is the least effective voice these days on the Iranian nuclear issue. And uh, my question was supposed to be, has he really uh, lost his ability to influence world leaders? So you, you, you're talking about the Americans. Is it uh, different in the international arena uh, against the uh, with the Europeans, the Russians, the Chinese? Well, uh, obviously, if an Israeli leader does not have the ability to mobilize support for Israel in Congress, which is, at the end of the day, the elected body of a very friendly country and the country that supports and loves Israel, you're going to see repercussions for that in other relationships as well. And what I wrote in this article that we discussed earlier is that every time Netanyahu now makes a statement about Iran, the people who watch it in Paris and in Berlin and in London, they remember 2018. Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron, and uh, it was, at the time it was Angela Merkel, they did not support this move by Trump. And so 
the leaders of these countries, even if they themselves are also friends and allies of Israel, listen, we, you know, France, Germany, and the UK, okay, these are not uh, the same relationships that we have with America, but these are real friends of Israel. They also remember what Netanyahu did. And when he talks about Iran, this is what comes to their memory, that the damage started with his pressure on Trump. And, and I think in that regard, it is a challenge for Lapid and Gantz, because even though there was a change of power here in Israel, at the end of the day, when Israel now tries to make a fuss about this agreement, we are probably going to hear from our allies, well, what do you want? What did you think was going to happen when your previous prime minister pushed us into this situation? Interesting. Uh, finally, do you see any resemblance between the behavior of the, the two leaders who were uh, ousted from power, one after the other, Trump and Netanyahu, both in terms of their uh, refusal to accept the voters, say, and in terms of uh, their methods? I think Netanyahu has learned a lot from Trump uh, in the last few years. And, uh, you know, Ben, when I was in the U.S., I lived there during the Trump term, basically. I was sent by Haaretz uh, to cover it. I was there on the day that Trump was inaugurated president, and I stayed until uh, the bitter end, you can call it. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of conversations with people in the American Jewish community. I traveled all over the U.S. to, to meet people in Jewish communities and visit synagogues. And um, I heard from a lot of people a painful reflection on Netanyahu. Because these were people that even if they, you know, perhaps wouldn't have voted for Netanyahu if they had Israeli citizenship, because they tend to be more liberal in their worldview, they admired him. They remembered a Netanyahu that rose to power in Israel as a young, moderate, uh, conservative, someone who was influenced by Ronald Reagan and uh, spoke of American values and the importance of liberal democracy. And they saw him transform in the, in the Trump years. And we know here in Israel that the transformation started before, but I think in America, a lot of people started to notice it only after Trump rose to power. They saw him transform into an extremist, uh, someone who attacks the legal system and threatens the, the founding values of the state of Israel. And they didn't understand what happened, uh, what caused this change. And a lot of them, I think, looked at it through the Trump prism. They saw it as a process in which uh, the Bibi that they grew up with, you can say, uh, or at least matured with politically, is suddenly becoming like the president that the overwhelming majority of American Jews did not vote for and prayed every day would lose power. Um, and I think that is a process that you cannot turn back. Uh, this is a change that happened. And to me as an Israeli, it also helped understand some of the processes that we are dealing with here in Israel. Uh, so I think there is a lot to the comparison, even though in terms of personality and biography, of course, the differences between these two men are huge. Uh, Netanyahu is an. You wrote about him. You wrote, you know, a fascinating biography about him. We know he's an intellectual. He grew up in an intellectual family. Unlike Trump, who did not serve in the military, he was an officer in a special forces unit. So there are, and he's been a career politician. Trump got into politics at a late stage of his life. So the differences are clear, but the resemblance is the more disturbing feature. And uh, one that the uh, people here in Israel and in America uh, are noticing all the time, uh, because, uh, again, the, it's just a, a very, very clear similarity between two leaders who are uh, threatening the rule of law 
and the foundations of democracy within their own country. Amir Tibon, it's my turn now to say it was fascinating. Very, very Thank interesting. You. Thank you very much for uh, joining us here in, uh, on Israel. Todaraba. We'll now uh, take a short break and be back right after this. Stay for us. Todamir. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and the Normal Soup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for uh, staying with us. Amrit Tibon uh, could not say, of course, uh, if and when the nuclear agreement will be signed between the powers and Iran, but he said that uh, it will be obviously finally be signed. No one can tell if it will, be, it will happen uh, in, the new, in the few weeks or days or months or years. But when the interest is common in uh, the United States and Iran, and the Russians, and the Chinese, and the Europeans, all the parties want it to happen, it will happen. Uh, for the Americans, he said, it is one less headache, and the president needs to focus on China, to focus on Russia and the Ukraine. He does not need this headache right now, so uh, there is a good chance this agreement will be finally signed. We were speaking about the Israeli uh, maneuvers and the policy. And uh, Amir said that with all due respect, Israel does not have the ability to kill uh, the interests or the purpose or, or, the, or the very uh, a common uh, effort uh, that is done by the Americans, by the Iranians, by all the parties. Uh, but uh, the, the Israeli current policy is a lot better and, and more accurate than what Netanyahu did because instead of fighting in the very signing of the, of the agreement, it seems that Lapid, Bennett, and Gantz are doing something else. They are going to do for the details. Uh, they're trying to be realistic. They're trying to influence the, the agreement, to shape the agreement, not to block or, or stop it or kill it. And this is a lot more uh, wise policy by the current Israeli government. And of course, of course, uh, most important is that uh, Prime Minister Lapid and also uh, Bennett, and of course, more than uh, both of them, Gantz, are staying away from the bravado and the uh, combative uh, statements by uh, Netanyahu that uh, made from this effort uh, even a jihad against uh, the American administration. Uh, Amir Tibon said that the last thing Israel needs is to turn this issue into a frontal confrontation between uh, Israel and the American 
administration, the United States of America is the most important strategic uh, asset of Israel, and uh, with or without this agreement, we have to keep it and uh, nurture it and not kill it. Tibon emphasized that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is the architect of the Iranian atomic bomb. This, of course, is because his effort, and right now he's actually admitting it, that he was the guy that persuaded President Trump to stay or to get out of the, of the agreement in 2018, uh, uh, something that uh, in retrospect uh, became a strategic disaster for Israel because right now uh, Iran is uh, closest more than ever to be a nuclear threshold state. And uh, Amir uh, was wondering where are the guys that were in real time near Netanyahu in 2018, people like the chief of staff then, General Gadi Eisenkot, that just joined Benny Gantz party, why don't they say uh, loud and clear what happened in 2018? And I answered Amir that uh, Eisenkot is going to speak. It will happen this Saturday in all the Israeli main uh, TV channels. And uh, we will be there just to listen and maybe to report for you as well. I hope you found this conversation interesting and I hope to find you here next week uh, in the same place and the same time in On Israel and I'll monitor. I'm Ben Kaspi from Tel Aviv. Take care and bye-bye.